Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Hamilton has announced its first death due to the virus. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us to discuss COVID-19 and break down what the city is doing. After a day of tense negotiations, the government has received unanimous support to pass its emergency COVID-19 legislation. What does that mean for Canadians? Well, we'll talk about that. And Donald Trump wants the U.S. to be open and ready for business again by Easter. Is that even plausible? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Wonderful talk about what's happening locally. Yesterday, Paul Johnson was on the program talking about some of the concerns that were going on in the city. And we wanted to touch base with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger about uh, what the city has been doing, what we should be doing better as everybody tries to do their part to deal with COVID-19. And to that end, we welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to The Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Mr. Mayor, good morning. Good morning. Are you there, Mr. Mayor? Can you hear me all right? Ah, now we can hear you. Yes, very good. Uh, I just mentioned at the top of the show that this is a difficult process, working uh, from a, a remote location like this. I didn't realize that we'd give them a shining example of that so soon in the program. But that's what happens with <laughs> well, these situations. You know what? We're all, we're all learning new things uh, during this, uh, this crisis. And, uh, you know, some of that may uh, come in useful in the future. But everyone has to be creative right now. And uh, certainly radio is no different. So kudos to you for keeping it going. Well, uh, thank you, and, and of course to our broadcast team and of course our engineering staff back at the radio station. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, not an, an easy process, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and I understand that there are some people that are getting a little frustrated. I mean, we've been into this idea about self-isolation uh, for, for a few days now, not really that long, but I know a lot of people are starting to get a little antsy and complaining about it. Uh, but at the same time, as, as you've talked about, Mr. Mayor, this may not be the new normal, but it's going to be the normal for a long time to come. Yeah, sadly, and uh, you know we we need to have everybody uh, you know get get do their best. Uh, you know they they need to be uh, their best selves right now. They need to be patient. Uh, they need to be patient with their kids. They need to be helpful to others. Uh, and we could be in for a longer haul than uh, anyone might have anticipated. And uh, you know it's it's frustrating. It's uh, it's, it's everyone is anxious. Uh, no one's immune from that. Everyone's feeling the, uh, you know, the crush of uh, the worry that uh, all of this brings to all of us uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, you know, myself and our, our staff team, as well as, uh, you know, all the people that are working at the city and everyone in the city, we're all in the same boat. And so um, what we need is patience from people, and we need them to adhere to the public health recommendations, you know, staying off of the play structures. Uh, we're going to be signing them today, uh, putting signs up saying do not use, uh, largely because they're not sterilized, they're not sanitized, and you don't know who's been there before. And so that uh, virus could be lingering there, and you might pick it up and bring it home, and, uh, and then the worst can happen from there. Uh, the other reality that we're finding out now is, you know, and there's previously been a belief that, um, you know, this is of most risk for the elderly with uh, preconditions, uh, we're finding now that uh, it is it is cutting right across the demographic and uh, an age age group, uh, uh, and, and everyone is able to get this, and 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 it can be serious for everybody. So everybody needs to be concerned about maintaining that physical distance. And so when I see pictures of uh, you know kids picking up uh, doing a pickup game of basketball or uh, soccer or football. You know, I understand the sentiment. Uh, you know, they're they're anxious to do something. We're just going to have to resist, not do that, and and keep that going for at least a few more weeks to see uh, how that is impacting the uh, the spread of the virus. So I ask everyone, just do your part. We all have a responsibility. Uh, do your part, and uh, and if we do, uh, we will have a better success and hopefully 
not have, uh, you know, too many, you know, deaths that we, uh, you know, the first one of which we saw yesterday as a result mm-hmm. of this fire. Yeah, I know. We had Paul Johnson on the program yesterday, as you know, the manager for emergency services. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, kudos to you and, and the city. I know you've set up kind of a mini task force here to, to monitor this thing. And Dr. Richardson, of course, the medical officer of health is involved in that, as is Paul yep. and yourself and other officials to monitor this on a daily basis. Uh, because it's a very fluid uh, process here, isn't it? I mean, things do change from day to day, and you may have to pivot one way or another to accommodate something new that you've learned. Yeah, well, so there's uh, new announcements coming down from the, the federal government, uh, you know, virtually daily, and new announcements coming from the province daily, and, uh, of course, keeping up with all of that. And then managing the day-to-day affairs of the city as we go forward has been a, a monumental task. And, I, you know, you mentioned the uh, task force. It's actually the, uh, the Emergency Operations Center, which consists of about 30 people, uh, all of the, the, the main leaders in all the major departments, from public works to fire to police to uh, paramedics, uh, all sitting in the room transit, all sitting in a room, uh, working out the kind of functional details of the, the changes that we have to make, uh, the closures we have to do, how that's going to impact people, how are we going to help the homeless you know, find uh, refuge and get food, uh, how are we going to help the elderly and the long-term care facilities. I mean, there's so much to do, uh, and they're doing an absolutely incredible job of managing that day-to-day. And, you know, we get lots of advice from people, you know, lots of... Um, and I'll say this respectfully, you know, worry. People, uh, you know, come up with ideas and thoughts, and uh, they're free to share them. But uh, I can tell you that this group uh, is on top of just about every issue that uh, we need to manage and uh, doing it quite successfully. And if uh, if the community at large does their part, then, uh, you know, we're, com- we're going to come through this uh, together successfully as well. The uh, the concern, I guess, an awful lot of people have expressed, Mr. Mayor, and I want to get your read on this, too, is that if it does get worse, and, and the medical experts are saying there's a very good chance that this is, is not, this is going to spike again. We're going to see mm-hmm. some higher numbers uh, globally, not just here in the Hamilton area, uh, is that we only have limited resources here, and we seem to be managing right now. But if it does get a whole lot worse, as some are expecting it to be, uh, the strain on the hospital system, the strain on our first responders uh, is, is going to be incredible. Yeah, and that's that's why we're trying to flatten the curve. So the the whole uh, whole idea is to uh, to not have this spike, so that it overwhelms the the, the healthcare system. And so if everyone does their part now, uh, you know all of this can be managed through regular healthcare. Uh, we all know that there's no vaccine for this, so this is not like the flu where we have uh, you know treatment that people can get, or we have a vaccination that people uh, can get ahead of time to help prevent the flu. Uh, This is a virus that that does not have a cure, that does not have a vaccine associated with it. So if you get it, you you potentially are in serious trouble, and it may not be uh, something that that, uh, the healthcare system can help you recover from. And so to not have the healthcare system overwhelmed, we need to, you know, stop the spread, stop the spikes in terms of cases that are going up that need to have medical attention. And if we can do that, then the system itself can manage. But there are they're planning for contingency. So uh, everyone's well aware of what's happening in other places. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the homeless are being, uh, you know, that have uh, COVID uh, ID symptoms are being uh, housed in a, a specific facility. They're looking at other additional facilities should the healthcare system need to expand and provide for more space that uh, those contingencies are all being looked at. So I don't think anyone needs to think that, uh, that, that we're not planning for the worst because we certainly are. But uh, helping helping to flatten the curve is uh, is uh, hoping for the best, and I think that's the, uh, the the best option we have right now. So everybody, do do the right thing, 
stay home, stay away from uh, others by six feet, don't gather in groups. And, uh, and if we can all do that uh, collectively and successfully, then uh, we can not over- then we don't have to overwhelm the, uh, the healthcare system and they can still manage uh, what they need to manage. An ever-changing situation. Uh, what we'd like to do, I guess, over the next uh, days and probably weeks, I guess now, hopefully months, I guess, of the, you know, the, depending on how this thing goes, uh, stay in touch on a regular basis and have you back in here to give us some updates on this. I know you're going to okay. be back with us on Friday morning as well, but uh, I know we're going to talk often about this. Thanks so much for the time today, Mr. Mayor, and uh, stay healthy. Yeah, you're welcome, Bill. Thank you. And just a reminder for the folks, uh, there's a town hall tonight on Cable 14 and uh, live streamed at 7 o'clock. Uh, from City Hall, and we'll be able to answer some questions that anyone in the community might have. Excellent. Thanks again. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a interesting day uh, one way to describe it i guess in ottawa yesterday as uh, some mps finally gathered at uh, parliament hill to uh, pass much needed legislation relief legislation uh, of course to do with the covid 19 uh and it finally did pass uh, early this morning joining us to talk about this is mercedes stevenson global news in ottawa uh, mercedes good morning glad to have you with us today thanks for having me on you didn't have to pull an all-nighter to cover this thing, did you? I mean, it, this this uh, was crazy. Well-defined all-nighter. I was I was up when they went <laughs> back into the house at 3 a.m. Uh, with the bells going off, which I think was like hour 22 of being yeah. awake. Uh, took a quick nap because I was at that point, uh, had multiple sources telling me it was going to pass. Uh, and, and woke up just as it was passing. Dawn was breaking over the city uh, just after 5.30 a.m., which was their scheduled time. So they didn't quite make that. Uh, but they, they got it done by close to 6.00. And, um, yeah, passed. I mean, once they had everyone on board, it was a matter of just very quickly cranking it through, uh, questions being asked, but there was no doubt that the opposition members had already agreed to what was in there. Um, I had sources telling me, Bill, last night around 10 that they had an agreement in principle. They were just waiting to see the text of the new draft. Um, and that once they had that, if it wasn't flash reflecting the request, changes they'd requested and changes I'd been told uh, by government sources were likely to be made, um, then it was it was a done deal. And here we are getting ready for it to head over to the Senate this morning to be approved there. But what what happened? Yesterday we were watching, uh, listening, of course, we carried the broadcast when you Donna Friesen uh, with the Prime Minister's uh, daily briefing. And, and, of course, you were there from Ottawa with your input into this. And at that time... Uh, you explained what the process was going to be, and we thought at that time that there was already all-party agreement on this. Uh, there will be a couple of hours of debate, and uh, you figured out almost by the supper hour they'd probably have this thing passed and moved on to the Senate. Easy peasy, right? Uh, where did this thing go off the rails? So it, it went off the rails on, I have to go back in my head now because all the days are blurring together, on Monday <laughs> night. Um, so Sunday night, this went to the opposition, the original version of the bill, um, and the opposition were outraged because there was some very substantial, frankly, unprecedented and sweeping powers in the bill that they had not discussed with the government during their negotiations uh, that would have allowed the finance minister, for example, to raise and lower taxes without having to go to parliament um, until well, 2022. Um, ministers able to spend unlimited amounts, you know, able to deal with a public health crisis. Uh, until December of 2021. Um, and people were saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Number one, uh, we've never had a situation where Parliament does not approve major spending. And number two, why do you need these powers for 21 months? Um, so the opposition said there's no way we're agreeing to this. Um, yesterday morning, the prime minister came out and said, okay, we'll take out that section about taxation in particular, because, I mean, the foundations of, of Westminster parliamentary democracy, if you go back, is no taxation without representation. So he said that shouldn't have been in the bill. It's out. 
Um, the opposition said, no, we're still not willing to sign off on something that allows federal ministers unlimited spending powers with this much time. So they hammered it out. There was a lot of tough negotiating. And the final agreement was that uh, some of those powers are still in there to spend, but they're much more circumscribed. Um, They're very clearly said to be related to COVID-19 as the public health crisis. And a lot of it is now sunsetting in September of this year. So not an unlimited check there. Um, And Parliament can, in fact, be recalled at any time. So everyone negotiated. They managed to come to an agreement by the end of the day and get this passed very quickly. Uh, So it's essentially still on track. Uh, but it was pretty contentious there for a while over sort of these introductions the liberal government made that caught a lot of people by surprise that a lot of folks saw as overreach. Uh, liberal sources told me, Bill, that what they were trying to do was make sure that they could spend very quickly in an emergency, potentially hundreds of billions of dollars without having Parliament reconvene because of the risk of COVID-19. The parliamentarians were saying, look, emergency or not, we can suspend sitting, but we can't suspend our responsibilities to the Canadian people. But you listen, all the years you've been covering uh, Parliament and, and, and federal politics, Mercedes, they had to have known this was a hand grenade that they were throwing into this. There's no way that the opposition parties were going to agree to that. I, I can't figure out why they did this the way that they did. Now, I had um, a couple of senior liberal sources tell me it was essentially a mistake, that there's so much happening um, that maybe things are getting put in that in other times where there might be more discussion internally first might not have made it into the bill. If people said, wait a minute, if we put this in, like without a sunset clause and this level of power, there's no way they're going to agree to this. Um, why they didn't go to the opposition, because they cleared everything else with them. The opposition was fine with all the EI stuff, the $82 billion, Canada child benefit, changes to taxes uh, for this year. And, and, you know, there was sort of anger in the opposition that this was left out. They felt they were being hoodwinked. I don't know why it is that the Liberals didn't tell them this was coming, if it's that finance put it in at the last second, um, or what the thinking was, but it clearly was going to be highly contentious. Uh, I don't think they would have gotten by and even going to them in advance, but they might have been able to amend it as they did to limit the powers and avoided this whole public fight. Who are the power brokers? I and mean, There was a lot of haggling going back and forth. As you mentioned, uh, when they finally did convene, they, they had to, to, to take some time off, and I guess they were doing some backroom dealing here. Pablo Rodriguez, of course, is the House leader for the Liberals right now. Is, is he the guy leading the charge since the Prime Minister's not there? Yeah, so he, particularly when it comes to legislation or any kind of a relationship with the opposition, that's the job of the House leader. So that's Pablo Rodriguez. Uh, on the Conservative side, Candace Bergen was the main person doing this. It would be Peter Julian for the NDP, but he's out in BC. So they had set someone in to represent him, but he was actually on a speaker phone listening in as well and contributing. Uh, the block was there too. The block kind of was fine with this by about 5 p.m. They said, uh, enough is enough made it into those 6 p.m. newscasts saying we want to move the money. Um, and uh, that put more pressure as well on the other opposition parties to, to not hold out for 100%. I mean, everyone had to put some water in their wine here. All the powers aren't gone. They, they have been limited, though, so the Tories didn't win all that. The Liberals probably got more than they would have if they hadn't gone so drastically far in the first place and started from that negotiating position. Um, so at the end of the day, we have a bill and it's ready to go. Uh, but it certainly was, was very contentious there for a while. Uh, what the Liberals have told me, for the record, is that this was always draft legislation that was sent to the opposition on Sunday night. They were always open to negotiating. Uh, they don't really understand why the Tories freaked out as much. But, you know, I've talked to some senior Liberals, too, who say it should have just been handled better. Like, we should have warned them before we sent them the bill that that was in there and started from that negotiating position instead of, yes, we're all signed off, we're all agreed upon. Oh, surprise, there's a hand grenade in there.
Well, I guess we should have anticipated there was going to be some high drama here, because I remember you re- reported yesterday morning that uh, there was one story uh, that uh, there was a, a conservative MP who wasn't even supposed to be part of this quorum, was going to crash the party, basically, and vote against it just <laughs> to screw things up. So uh, it, it, that didn't happen, apparently, but, you know, we oh, he, got all this. He did show up. Oh, he did he? Did show up. That was Scott Reed. Yeah. He absolutely showed up. And, in fact, he sat there looking exhausted uh, late into the night. The Tories didn't want him there. Um, he was there because he was mad at his own leadership, not the Liberals. Uh, and it wasn't what was in the bill so much as he said, I fundamentally disagree with you asking to vote on my behalf because each party sent a limited number of people to this in order to approve it because they didn't want to risk COVID-19. Uh, and he said, like, I thought I was going to get to see the bill and give my input at least, even though other people are voting on it. I'm not okay as a parliamentarian with agreeing to vote for something for $82 billion and not seeing what's in it. That was a very controversial move. A lot of conservatives were very angry with him. Uh, others thought of him standing up for the rights of MPs. At the end of the day, he didn't vote against it. It all went ahead. Uh, but that certainly was, uh, the, the Tories were dealing sort of with two problems there, the Liberals on one side and the Scott Reid problem on the other side. Uh, great reporting on this uh, for the last 24 hours, and there's a lot more to come, I guess, as this goes on. And another long day, it looks like, ahead of you now. Mercedes, thank you so much for this. Uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on uh, Global National, and I guess a little bit later on when the Prime Minister speaks. Uh, re- appreciate you jumping Absolutely. in today, though. Thanks Take for care now. Me, stay, stay healthy. Get some rest. You Mercedes too, okay. Stevenson, of course, <laughs> at, uh, up in Ottawa today. And like I can say, she's back on duty with all the things that need to be done with uh, what's happening with the Prime Minister's comments and uh, what's happening on Parliament Hill. And as we mentioned, that process is not done yet. Just the fact that it passed the House uh, is not law yet. It may be later on today. Joining us to talk about that end of it, Peter Grave, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Peter, good morning. How are you today? Great, thanks. Uh, long day, a weird day in Ottawa last night, uh, but I guess uh, during unusual times we can expect some unusual circumstances to occur. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's a sign that we have parliamentarians without a lot of parliamentary experience in a way that, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that we end up with situations uh, such as this. I mean, we, we were able to go through two world wars without, uh, you know, suspending the fundamental rights of parliament. So, you know, in situations like this, it's a bit odd when you, you get to situations where the idea that we could have parliamentarians debating things, uh, asking questions, uh, seems to be beyond our capacity. It's it's kind of a weird, bizarre, almost surreal process that was going there yesterday, and the back and forth that was going on. In spite of the fact that you know, before this whole thing started yesterday, everybody was seemed to be on the same page. Peter, you know what? We're just going to set our differences aside. We're going to pass this because it's for the good of the of the Canadian people. Uh, until they sat down there, it must be something in the air in that room when they, when they all assemble there that they they all get a little crazy. Well, I don't think they were crazy. I mean, I think uh, all parties agreed that we needed to get the money moving. Uh, the issue was more that there were elements of the bill which were, you know, a fundamental affront to the idea of parliamentary oversight, <laughs> kind of the core feature of our, of our political system that the government had placed in there. So the idea that, you know, the government could unilaterally raise or lower taxes uh, or spend money without any parliamentary oversight and, you know, well beyond what seemed to be the likely uh, window within which uh, Parliament uh, wouldn't be able to meet uh, uh, because of the health uh, concerns. So in that context, uh, I mean, I think it uh, was to be expected that the opposition parties would come out and say, well, we can't sign you a blank check. Right? Uh, we, we were, again, we were able to get through some wars, uh, you know, with having some parliamentary oversight, with having the capacity to ask questions. So how is it in this case that suddenly we'd be, we'd be signing these blank checks? And I think, uh, you know, in moments of crisis, uh, you know, when there's a, an aspect of fear in the population, we're probably very quick to give up our liberties. 
I think we should be thankful that our uh, opposition parties insisted that uh, oversight continue, even if it's kind of novel approaches have developed in terms of the government, uh, you know, having to announce its intentions, uh, having the finance committee meet, and having the finance committee having the ability to recall parliament if they suspect there's been abuses. And these are kind of like novel ways of trying to uh, control the executive, but uh, maybe they're, they're necessary in this context. And it's just unusual, the timing of this as well. I mean, it would be a bold move for any government to do to try to insert something like this into a piece of legislation. But when you're in a minority situation and you're trying to build some teamwork, you just got to wonder. I, I, I don't know who is responsible for this. The prime minister was rather evasive when they asked him about it during his press conference yesterday morning, but I'm sure it's going to be the focus of an awful lot of the questions going on today. Uh, just a rather peculiar way for them to approach something like this. And, and of course, it's led to all sorts of speculation. Uh, that Why would the government do this? That, are things worse than they're telling us they're going to be? Is the economy crashing and, and they're going to need superpowers? Uh, in the absence of information comes speculation, and that's never good in a, in a time like this. Yeah, I mean, I think the more likely explanation is that it's a government that we saw through the past four years uh, doesn't really like Parliament. Uh, I think it's a bunch of people whose experience has been leading organizations, uh, and they want the ability simply to execute their will without having to go through Parliament and have to have that kind of debate. And so I think in this case where they say oh, we have to make big decisions in, in a short period of time, the idea that there might be certain rules or constraints that they'd have to do that within, uh, they have a tough time with. And so I think that's really the main reason they wanted carte blanche to say, well, you know, we know best how to solve this problem, so let's not let the sort of existing rules uh, stand in the way. Let's make it very easy for ourselves to change them. And again, I think uh, the opposition parties uh, received a fair bit of criticism from Canadians about why are they holding this up you know, there's a lot of reasons why in a moment of crisis opposition parties won't want to be uh, too aggressive in terms of questioning the government, but we certainly still want them to have that capacity uh, to ask to ask questions, uh, because asking questions is often where, uh, you know, governments find, well, they hadn't thought of something, or they hadn't really weighed uh, the different uh, impacts closely enough or thought about certain parts of the population and how it affects them. So, I mean, we want to have that continued uh, opposition oversight. But again, for a government, that's always getting in the way. And I think for this government in particular, they have very little patience uh, for the sorts of rules and accountabilities that they have to Parliament. Yeah, we saw some examples of that, as you say, in the first four years of their of their mandate, and uh, we thought maybe they were getting over that by some of the, the the you know more professional things that they did in the last little while. But I guess this is a step backward. Let me ask you about part two of this process, which of course is is the Senate, uh, a rather unpredictable body these days, uh, Peter. Uh, can we anticipate there's going to be any problems, or is this uh, going to get the, uh, the the easy passage through the Senate and get this thing out? Um. I suspect we'll we'll see easy passage. I'm sure that uh, some of the uh, modifications that were made to placate the opposition might still be deemed, uh, you know, an affront to the traditional ways of Parliament controlling public spending. So we may see some senators standing and making some speeches today, but ultimately uh, I think there'd be nothing better to uh, reduce uh, the support for that institution in the Canadian population than to have a, a bunch of unelected senators making a decision to, to stymie a plan, um, you know, maybe it's not the best way of getting economic help to Canadians in this moment, but certainly it's better than not doing anything at all. So I think to stand in the way uh, would be uh, a way for the Senate really to, uh, well, maybe not sign its death certificate, but to greatly reduce uh, its legitimacy in the eyes of the Canadian public. It's, it's 
different times and difficult times, obviously. We're seeing the same sort of thing going on uh, at just about every level of government right now because of, uh, obviously, the fact that we're dealing with COVID-19 and the impact that it is having right now. But uh, and, and you're right, we're kind of in uncharted waters here, really. I mean, as you mentioned, we've gone through crises before, uh, world wars, two of them, uh, the, the FLQ crisis, of course, back in 1970 with the, uh, the War Measures Act was imposed back in those days. But this is, this is new stuff. It's not like there's a precedent that they can fall back on and say, okay, here's how we govern when something like this happens. No, that's true. But, I mean, I think governments have uh, usually a pretty uh, free hand in a situation of crisis because, again, when people are fearful... I think they're really willing to give up their liberties to have effective action. Um, and so I think it's, it's that, in the longer view, where you actually want a stronger opposition, because uh, it may be that people give their liberties away a bit too freely, right? and their, their right of oversight, their right of debate. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is a situation where uh, when opposition parties oppose, they'll receive a lot more criticism than usual by people saying, why aren't you being a team player? Uh, it's in retrospect that maybe we come to value uh, the fact that those questions were asked at those, at those moments. Uh, I mean, we can think, for instance, after 9-11 and the, the rush to get through some anti-terrorism legislation and parties that stood up and said, well, wait a second, this is, you know, an affront to rights, or are we going too far, or is this actually a dangerous precedent? Uh, we're widely criticized by Canadians for, you know, not being team players, not standing up to the terrorists. Uh, maybe 10 years or 15 years later, as the Supreme Court uh, knocks down a number of those provisions for being unconstitutional, we say... Well, maybe it was good we had those voices that, that put some limits and some sunset clauses and, and meant that that stuff didn't last forever. Governments have a responsibility to explain not just what they're doing, but why they're doing it, though, don't they, Peter? I mean, this, I mean, the two words that we always tend to throw around, and I like to think that governments are listening to, is accountability and transparency. And even in a time of crisis, I think Canadians should still demand that. Yeah, and in a way, we do have pretty uh, immediate transparency in that we've been having you know daily press conferences by our political executives explaining what they're mm -hmm. doing, and it's not Parliament holding them account so much as a press gallery, but having you know uh, questions put to them in that way. Uh, I mean, I think accountability changes in a moment of crisis. Uh, I mean, as citizens, we probably do want our opposition parties to ask questions, uh, uh, to get better explanations, a better understanding of what's going on. But in many cases, I think our accountability becomes more retrospective. Uh, recognizing that decisions have to be made in the heat of the moment, um, but then knowing that you know there, this will come to an end, and at that point we can make a decision about well, did our government act uh, properly? Did they make the right decisions? So at the moment, there's not a lot of second guessing about what we're being asked to do. Uh, I think at the end of it, we can step back and say, okay, what what were the the good decisions? But maybe what were the more problematic ones? But generally, I think citizens uh, grant their governments a fair bit of slack in those situations, recognizing. Uh, the difficulty of the decisions that they have to make in a very short period of time uh, based on a very uncertain situation. Peter Grafe, uh, political science professor at McMaster University. As always, Peter, thanks so much for this. Uh, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon. And you too. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of people were shocked yesterday, and I guess actually the day before when uh, Donald Trump did his uh, town hall on Fox News uh, from the White House lawn that he suggested that it may be time to get back to work and to ease uh, the social distancing that was going on and get folks back into the workplace. Uh, much to the shock of an awful lot of people in the medical profession that says, whoa, 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 we're not even there yet. Uh, but that's Trump. That's the way he goes. And uh, it's having an impact already on, on the way that people are looking at what's happening with COVID-19 and the way that the United States government is dealing with it. Joining us to talk about this, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa. Elliot, good morning. How are you today? 
Good morning, Bill. I'm pleased to report I'm fine, thank you, and I hope you and good yours to know. are the same. So far, so good. Broadcasting from home, of course, as many people are working from home these days. But, uh, you know, we all have to, to make some adjustments, don't we? Yes, and uh, I don't think I've been out outside for three days now, <laughs> but I'm trying to upgrade my home uh, broadcasting capacity. <laughs> good, good. I think a lot of us are being innovative about this. Uh, I, listen, for a guy who shocks us almost every day, this, this one just seemed to be a little more over the top than usual. I mean, the idea that in the midst of a crisis, and we're still in that crisis, and we're hearing about rising death tolls and rising reported cases of COVID-19, for Trump to come out and suggest maybe it's time for us to just relax and go back to work, uh, it was, was rather bizarre. I think it's, uh, we are raring to go by Easter, full churches by Easter. We should keep in mind that for a lot of people, this will make perfect sense. That is, the polling shows that Republicans, far more than Democrats, uh, don't take this seriously because their president has told them not to. It's a hoax, it was what he first said. And it, mm -hmm. I have it under control, it'll all be gone in a few days. And of course, he's changed on that, and he's now been given and is uh, utilizing to some degree enormous new powers. The message he's been giving, uh, if you've followed that plus his later uh, interviews, he, he's in the press room, which he's apparently just discovered. <laughs> because he's canceled all press briefings. But uh, what he's been saying is there are hot spots in the country, but not the whole country is affected. And those places that are not affected, well, why shouldn't they go back uh, to work? Uh, America is not built to uh, not work. We're, we're built to work. And uh, those areas are his core strength. He's, uh, you and I have talked about this over many, many conversations. Mm -hmm. You should look at all messages from the White House as messages to his electoral base. And he's saying that the Farm Belt and large parts of Texas, uh, there's no reason why they should be under lockdown and that Americans should go back to work as soon as possible. But, of course, he will be data-driven on this, will be flexible. So what he's suggesting here is that uh, the stock market, which he places great value in, uh, should be looked at, and it undoubtedly will shoot up now that the two trillion dollar and i think mnuchin secretary of treasury mnuchin said the total package including the feds is up to eight trillion dollars of input into the economy will sustain the economy the economy will do very well uh economists remember bill say hey look the stock market isn't the economy uh it can go up and down what's to watch for is the gdp and if it gdp yeah. gross domestic product stays uh, negative for two successive quarters, that's the definition officially of a recession. And uh, Forbes magazine, the business magazine, has said, no, we're heading to a depression. So now there's a huge gamble going on by Donald Trump that, assuming he follows through on this, and that's not certain at all. Uh, he's saying he's being very reasonable, and he's going to be flexible. Uh, but if he follows through on this, he's suggesting that I need an effective stock, you know, a showy stock market and a booming economy to get me reelected. That is a big gamble. Elliot, this really underscores what we've been saying, and a lot of people have been speculating for quite some time, that from day one, as you mentioned, he was in denial about, uh, about uh, the, the, the crisis to begin with, COVID-19 crisis. But even when he finally started to accept that, okay, we've got a problem here, uh, he still looks at this as an economic problem, not as a public health problem. It's a public relations problem. 
It's an yeah. electoral, re, electoral uh, success or failure problem. It's a mobilized. Now, that's being ungenerous. Remember, the Republican base sees him as a wise, patient, calm manager of a crisis. And his popularity is going up somewhat in the country. Uh, he has the advantage of the bully pulpit and people who see him as a leader at a time of crisis, and many will do so, will approve of the actions he's taking. So, and again, playing to the base, we get that. But, I mean, uh, even some people that you would think would be part of that base, now I get what you're saying about, you know, the farmers, the blue-collar workers, etc. but even some of the folks on, on Bay Street, uh, we're, we're kind of wide-eyed about this. Uh, Morgan Stanley, investment yeah. bank, says if the White House were to relax the social distancing measures soon, well ahead of the necessary timeline to have a significant impact in our view, it would raise the risk of increasing the peak or delaying the time of the peak. This is Morgan Stanley, who you'd think would be saying, yeah, let's get back to normal, but they're afraid that this is going to make this situation worse. And they're in New York City. <laughs> yeah. As is Goldman Sachs. Uh, and it's all around them in New York. That's now the, the epicenter. A global epicenter, mm -hmm. according to who? You know, WHO. And yeah. uh, uh, something like half or so of the total cases are now in New York State. A lot of those in New York City, a densely populated uh, city, one of the great cities of the world, but, you know, everybody's mm -hmm. packed in uh, tight. So uh, the governor of New York, you probably have noticed, is emerging as, a, as an alternate voice in, in all of this, saying, here's a crisis. What he said most recently is, we are your future. And going back to those areas that might be opened up, according to Donald Trump, according to the President of the United States, for economic and, uh, and uh, you know, let's pack the churches at Easter, those areas could also show up with, with this virus only in due course. They're rural and they're sparsely populated and their population is strung out, so they're physically separated anyway and to a large degree. But... Uh, the governor of New York is saying, we are your future, and he's taking extraordinary measures, uh, converting the Javits Center into a thousand-bed hospital. Uh, Donald Trump has said, uh, I'm going to help New York. I'll be there for New York. I'm sending uh, a ship there that has a thousand beds in it. And, uh, but the rest of the country doesn't have to follow that uh, because they're not as affected. That's a big gamble. For, we all know, of course, that but, you know there's going to be an election in November. At least I think there's going to be an election in November. We Good can question. talk about that a little bit later on, too. Uh, but he desperately does not want a recession, and clearly not a depression, uh, going into an election cycle. I mean, this is he seems to be pivoting as much as he can here, Elliot, to try to prop up the stock market so we can say, look at what I've done here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if there's collateral damage, I mean, you heard one of the, his minions the other day saying, look, at, you know, old people are going to die, so young people can have a better economy. It's a rather bizarre set of, of, of priorities, but that seems to be the mindset that some of them have. A lot, hey, old people vote. <laughs> so, yeah. Much more than young people. This is what Sanders has discovered, uh, and a lot of those have been reliable Republican voters. But if, uh, if they get sick because of the – all of this depends on – and this is a global issue. Uh, we've had basically entertaining disruptors take over states – with the apparent failures of globalization. Uh, now they have to be leaders. I think every single leader in the world, remember we're now going to have a G7 and a G20 meeting virtually held rather than face-to-face, -face, uh, with Saudi Arabia being host to this year's G20, which is interesting in itself. But 
leaders everywhere are going to be judged on how they handle this. It's an open question at the minute, uh, ours included, as to what kind of crystallization of viewpoint uh, on their behavior will happen at election time. Uh, high drama in both capitals going on these days, and uh, we obviously want to keep our eye on that as well as dealing with COVID. Uh, Elliot, please stay healthy. Uh, great talking with you again, and we'll stay in touch as uh, these things unfold over the next uh, few months. Uh, pleasure talking to you, uh, Bill, from my home to your home. You betcha. Elliot Tepper, of course, from uh, Carlton University, or from Elliot's house right now, as it turns out. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.